0: Welcome to Sarcasmic with Daya Lakshminarayanan on Ravishly.com. This month's episode deals with speaking up and speaking out. A lot of women talk about this subject, which is hey, when should I speak up? If something feels weird, if I encounter discrimination, if something doesn't seem right, when am I obligated to say something? Or when should I say something? But if I do, this could come back to bite me in the ass. I might lose my job. I might get demoted. That's what this month's episode is about. We have an amazing guest, Corinda Dobbins, who is a biotech worker by day, stand-up comedian by night. We'll hear from her. And to kick it off, one of the first times I spoke up was my mother had pulled me out of kindergarten for a while. And, you know, you're not going to miss much in kindergarten. I mean, what if you miss L through S? I mean, you can catch up on that later on. Or maybe you don't use those letters and, you know, you just kind of have to make do with what you have. But my mother pulled me out to take me on a trip to India. And I got to India and everyone was like, what's what's wrong with your daughter? She doesn't know how to read. Wow, America must be really bad. And it wasn't that I was dumb. I was just a little slow. And uh, everyone else in India, all my cousins, they, they could read, they could speak two languages. And so my mom was like, oh, my gosh, am I a bad mom? Also, I had all these behavioral issues. I broke things. I got in trouble. I ran into the street. So people just thought, wow, American kids are bad, horrible, all this kind of stuff. But because I was there for a couple of months, two to three months, and I missed a lot of kindergarten, I started to speak in Tamil. So I spoke a little English, but most of the time I started to speak Tamil, which is the native language we speak at home. And I started to get really good at it. And I think my mom was happy. She's like, okay, my kid is at least bilingual. She doesn't know any, she doesn't know how to read and she has behavior issues, but at least she can speak another language. And that was fun, and I started getting close to the, to the family that I didn't really know. It's a multi-hour trip to get there, so it's not like we went back all the time. It was expensive. My parents didn't have a lot of money. So it was nice that I got to spend that much time there. And I got to do all this cool stuff, like go to the zoo in India where uh, they just have all these fascinating animals, and some of them just, you know, are are just out and about. I mean, like, there's uh, the snake park, and it didn't look very well guarded. There was just a fence, and just snakes could hang out there. I was like, well, what if just one passes through the fence? I mean, that's not a very good park. They're like, ah, oh, it's fine, you know. Um, so it was a really interesting experience. I was, uh, I got exposed to poverty, uh, weird things like leprosy. I'm like, oh, what's that? My mom's like, that's a leper. I was like, oh, we, we don't have that in America. Very interesting. Uh, When I got back to the United States, my mom was like, well, time to go back to kindergarten. And my teacher, Mrs. Baird, said, what did you do when you were in India? So I had to explain all of the stuff that had happened. Meeting new cousins, speaking a second language, Cobra Park, all of this stuff. I didn't know how to begin. It was so overwhelming. And I had only been speaking in a second language. And the only thing I could remember to say was, Uh, this elephant ride that I took. So I said, in broken English, I said, I rode on an elephant. And then the entire class started laughing at me because they thought I made this up because, you know, back then, this was Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, You don't ride on an elephant in the suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. South Euclid is where we lived. You don't just like go, hey, time to ride an elephant. I mean, that's not really what you do. I mean, the ice cream man is the most excitement that you get in that neighborhood. So riding on an elephant is not, you might have had to prep people before you told them that. And besides, the only experience my classmates had with elephants was Babar, and he wore a suit. So I don't think he would let any children really ride on him. He had dignity. He, he was a king. He had a crown. Uh, so this was very foreign to them. And as soon as it came out of my mouth and the entire class laughed, Mrs. Baird asked a follow-up question. She's like, an elephant? How did you get on top of an elephant? And what happened in India is people ride elephants so frequently, there's a staircase. And so you wait in line and you just kind of walk up the staircase and you wait. And then an elephant kind of comes by and then it's, it's kind of like... You know, like a, like one of those uh, water slide parks. You walk to the top, and then when it's ready, you go, woo, you know, down. But there's no water. You're not sliding. You just get on the elephant when the elephant comes by, and you're at the top of the staircase. They build these structures specifically for elephant rides. So when I said I just went upstairs, then the class laughed at me even more because they're imagining like a spiral staircase that you just – take around with you for elephant rides and nobody believed me. And then at that point I was like, well, I better start speaking English again. It discouraged me from really speaking up again in kindergarten because I was like, what if people laugh at me again? What if people think I'm lying? And, um, and so I only talked about things that I thought other people could relate to. When I sort of grew out of that phase and I realized I could speak more and people might take things that I said seriously. Uh, It was probably in junior high when my identity as a nerd was really being uh, formed. My identity as a nerd was really being formed because uh, your brain as a nerd really accelerates faster than your vocabulary and your social skills so if an idea pops into your head as a nerd i'd just be like well well, actually um algebra was um it's an eric term uh indians actually invented the zero so i'm not sure if you know that uh and no kids want to hear about that no kids just would prefer to wait until the bell rings and then leave algebra class so uh, I learned that if you say something that seems kind of smart, your classmates will also laugh at you. So then I would only talk about those things in the confines of safe spaces like math team, debate team, chess club. And uh, those people thought that what I had to say was interesting. So then I learned another important lesson, which is know your audience don't just try to speak up whenever. And by this time, my parents had moved from Cleveland, Ohio, to Birmingham, Alabama. So this is when people would ask my family questions like, why do you wear that dot? Do all Indian people eat monkey brains? Because they'd watched a little bit too much Indiana Jones. Um, I should have said, do all white people's faces melt? But, you know, I, I held back, held back on that one. So uh, I had to figure out ways that I could use my verbal ability to let people know, please don't ask me these questions. And then it's it, you can't you can't use feelings. You can't say, oh, that that makes me feel a little uncomfortable when you ask me these questions. You have to come back with something witty. Uh, so when I was getting my hair cut one time, the hairdresser did ask me. She's like, India, I heard Indians eat monkey brains. And I was like, actually, not all Indians, because at the time, my parents were vegetarian. I said, no, not all Indians eat monkey brains. Uh, Some of us eat hairdressers. And then uh, she uh, cut my hair, and then she just didn't say much for the rest of that. So that's when I realized, if I speak up and speak out, it has to have a dual purpose. It has to inform and possibly shut someone up. Uh, And the bonus is it could make someone laugh. And I'm pretty sure that it didn't make her laugh, but it made me and my mom laugh. So if I could achieve those goals, then speaking up and speaking out wasn't so bad. So if I could have control of the laughter. When I went off to college at MIT, which is a great place for nerds that have uh, not many friends, but... uh, like to start sentences with actually uh i uh was a woman in an environment that there weren't a lot of guys so uh and please let's have some empathy for these men at mit they had been bullied they had been bullied for being you know smart guys many of these men uh had limited interactions with women uh maybe uh you know, a teacher, maybe a sister, a cousin. But, you know, I had a lot of compassion for these guys, too. It didn't make it easier for them to interact with young women who were uh, at MIT. The ratio of, of men to women was very skewed. And so uh, one time the sexism went from being subtle to overt when my uh, date to an MIT formal, um, very handsome dude, uh we were all dressed up and nice. And he he actually me and he uh, said, um, actually, I heard that uh, MIT is becoming less competitive because they're, uh, you know, they're accepting more women into MIT. And this made me furious. Here I am like asking this guy to come to this event with me. And he is saying these things that he has no idea about. So what does a good nerd do? I, you know, came back at him with statistics and I was like, actually, Mr. Actually, uh, women have higher cumulative GPAs at MIT than men do. Women on average have higher graduation rates that men do at MIT. And women also have higher placement, job placement or graduate school placement if they choose to do so Because we have to work twice as hard. So we have to be better. And then he goes, "Hmm, wow, you have strong opinions. And I was like, well, these aren't opinions, Phil. These are facts. And uh, so the other thing I learned is to have facts. Have facts when you come across an actually nerd. Because even if they don't believe you, then it's not opinion-based. When should women speak out? When is it better to hold your tongue? Are there ways of doing it that create social impact and social change? Must we shame people? N- maybe we don't have to. Maybe there's a different choice. Uh, when have we spoken out and been really vulnerable, and it just it didn't work, or it did work? And I'm excited that Corinda Dobbins is going to help me answer some of those questions. I'm here with my friend, often co-producer and fellow comedian, Corinda Dobbins. She is a biotech superstar by day and comedian extraordinaire by night.
1: I want that on my business card. I think biotech it's- superstar?
0: <laughs> I think it's kind of long. Awesome. I need that. Okay, cool. You can have it.
1: <laughs> Don't try to ask for credit later.
0: No, I won't. I won't. That's, that's yours. It's, <laughs> it's not orig- original enough to ask <laughs> We're talking about speaking up and speaking out or speaking out and speaking up. And I've talked a little bit about my experience. And uh, we've, we've gone through this a lot. We have had several occasions where we've spoken up. And several occasions we're like, well, we should have said
1: something. Right. I've had too many of those probably. I mean, it all depends on the situation, especially for me, like as a black woman, because I already have that bullseye on my forehead, right? An angry black woman whenever I speak out about anything. So I sort of have to do it in measured tones. Mm. And um, my mom has sort of coined it as like, I just cuss you out with like really big words. <laughs> and then it, it, it soothes the soul better. Uh, yeah. Like I just had this training in L.A. And, um, you know, how they have these trainings of like crucial conflicts, like how you're supposed to resolve conflict in the workplace. Oh, yeah. Some leadership and person some leadership up. person. And it's this guy who's leading the, the talk or whatever. And they have these different situations. And, of course, there's this the scenario they present where it's a, uh, it's a white guy. And a black woman and the white guy comes in the room and he just starts going off on this black woman for some expense report. She did improperly, but she really didn't. And of course, then she in retaliation just goes off completely. And somebody who's in the training is like, you go, girl. And then the white guy who's oh, running no. the seminar starts doing, like, this snappy thing oh. with his arms and his hands. And I'm like, what is going on here? These are here? just people in the session. who These are just people in the session. And so they have this similar scenario later on in the training, and except it's a white guy and it's a white woman. And the white guy goes off on this woman for, for no reason. Some report she could have done better or didn't do right. And she has the exact same reaction. And At nobody the in woman. the class says anything. And the comedian part of me wanted to be like, "You go, girl!" <laughs> but then, <laughs> but then, then I'm being confrontational, <laughs> right? So
0: you didn't say anything.
1: I didn't say anything.
0: Do you wish you had? I wish I had. What would you have said?
1: I would have said exactly what I just said.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, so why would? Uh, so when the comedian part of you comes out, do you ever think? Okay, sometimes the comedian part is effective at, like diffusing the situation through comedy or would you would you ever say maybe I should have a one-on-one talk and say how that wasn't appropriate or be like excuse me the the thing that happened in the room wasn't a positive reaction for me as a black woman. Why? I felt
1: like I really should have done that with the guy who was leading the the seminar. I should have pulled him aside and said you know that that snappy thing that you're doing isn't okay mm-hmm. um but you know how it is like with those two, three day trainings, it's like I didn't really have the energy to have that conversation with him. <laughs> I was like so drained from watching PowerPoint slides. It's like the blood was <laughs> leaching out of me at every
0: second. I think that's the new <laughs> way of oppression, oppression through PowerPoint. It's it to was. subjugate black people, I think.
1: It's like I can't even do this with you right now. Like these PowerPoints have drained me of life. So um, I feel like I should have and I didn't.
0: Do you think there would have been any negative consequence if you had really said either comedically or seriously, like how you felt?
1: Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) I'm sure. Um, Because not only would I have seemed like I was mocking the other two people, I was the only black person in that room who probably gets why that's offensive.
0: And why is it offensive?
1: Um, Because you're making a stereotype of of black women that I've seen a hundred and a hundred million times already, uh, in my lifetime. And, um, you know, and if I had said something about, you know, that, that white guy who kept going off on people, you know, if I would have said something like, Oh my God, is oppression your thing? You know what I mean? Like they would have been like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like you can't really, it's like, they can't, I don't think they can, Equate like how that makes me feel because they're they just think it's like something that they've heard a lot in their lifetime and it doesn't seem like a big deal to them and
0: the the stereotype of the sassy black woman oh, yes who her head goes in many directions and she snaps her fingers she's
1: rolling her eyes and she's smacking gum and she's bad at customer service it's like that's all.
0: That's <laughs> the Wow. that That's what they say about my people, too. They say, I can't understand this person on, on the phone. Can I speak to an American?
1: <laughs> yeah, they do. But you guys don't... Ha- like, it's a different yeah. kind of stereotype with you guys with sure. customer service. It's a not understanding, not that you don't know what you're doing or you're not going to give good service. It's just that they don't understand your service.
0: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it could be the best service, but just nobody knows.
1: Right. So...
0: Uh, have you had... Instances where you weren't tired from PowerPoint and you weren't drained (laughs) and you did say something like that was inappropriate or, hey, in in, in the corporate environment. And did you have a positive or negative response?
1: Uh, It's always going to be negative. (laughs) It's always going to be negative. Um, I've had several experiences in corporate America where people have made comments about – because I live in Oakland Mm -hmm. and – Sometimes I think we were moving from one place to another place, uh, different buildings. And this one woman had, um, a lot of stuff like all over her office and everyone else was like packed up and ready to go. And like, um, my boss walked into her office and he was like, Julie, this office looks so ghetto. <gasps> now we're talking about a middle-aged white guy. And I was like, Steve, don't you live in Pleasant Hill? <laughs> How do you know what a ghetto looks like? (laughs) You know, and I did it kind of lightheartedly. So it probably wasn't offensive as it should have been. But, you know, I just sometimes I just check people with my tone. You know, so that they know like you, you say, like I won't completely go off on them, but my tone will let them know that I'm serious.
0: So your tone is normally pretty mellifluous like you have a nice voice you have a nice Daya, this
1: is sunday you're using big words what, what is mellifluous <laughs>
0: it, it's it's it it's nice to hear
1: oh so you. you
0: will adjust your tone yes. a little bit
1: yes how, absolutely how
0: do how does that sound like
1: it sounds a little like your mom scorning you but ah. in, but in like you know how your mom used to scorn you but with love yes like your dad was just Mm -hmm. scorn you but but your mom would do it like like if i tell you this one more time yeah you know it's like that tone where do you you know something bad's gonna happen if it happens again and like that's the tone i gave him i was like this is inappropriate but i'm gonna tell you it this way because next time you know i'm gonna be in hr so
0: right and they they don't use that word in front of you
1: they don't anymore they use a lot of other words but You know, we just have to go down the list, and like "ghetto" has been stricken from the right from the tombstone. So <laughs> it's just like
0: so. You have to. It's like one word, one phrase at a time. Like yes, you, they, it, it's it's and so it, it's a combination of speaking up but not being too strident, and then because
1: really, yeah, because ghetto. Really, what they're saying is that. Um, this is this is black, you know. Yeah. This is urban. This is poor. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of a code word for that. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody uses the term ghetto and means a place where white people live and are poor. You know what I mean? So it's it's really a coding of several different layers of things. You know, it's not just saying her office is mm-hmm. messy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's saying really almost like this is beneath you.
0: Yes, because it's <laughs> black.
1: Yeah, because it, it looks. Right, I've heard people say shower curtains are ghetto, and I'm just like, "What? Like, I don't even know what that means."
0: I don't. (laughs) That's that. That is a unique one. I don't even know what where that analogy goes. It would be like it's raggedy. Oh, right, has
1: holes. You know, I I know what it means, but I'm just saying I don't know how you can equate shower curtains with being. I it's like did it have a hard upbringing like what? like let's talk about this
0: <laughs> there's a lot of other
1: things that go along with that term like is it is it you know is it in a, a red line district where they didn't have quality education like what what kind of curtains are these is there you
0: know? a food desert nearby <laughs> right. the shower curtain
1: it's it'd a, be like
0: if someone was like wow it's julie. an
1: analogy that doesn't make sense you know
0: or julie wow your office is so slumdog <laughs>
1: You you know, know, nobody says, you know, this office is really trailer park, Julie.
0: Right, right.
1: You know nobody ever ever says that. So I mean, it's it's sort of disturbing on a lot of levels for me.
0: Have you ever spoken up and gone to HR or do you find it's most effective when you just speak up when it happens?
1: I've never gone to HR. When you're in corporate America, you realize that HR works for the company. Yeah. And anything that you go to HR with is going to be resolved. And the company is going to be the beneficiary. (laughs) So there's really no need to do that. Um, And I think unless there's an instance of someone really um, openly sexually harassing you or saying something that's so degrading racially. And there has to be a lot of witnesses in both instances. Mm -hmm. um, HR is is not a place where um, it's going to resolve in your favor. So I just usually do it personally. So that they know that this is not something that you should say to me
0: in the moment or a couple yes. of, okay, in the moment is best.
1: Yes. If you because f- I don't want to go back and say, remember when you said that thing two weeks ago? And they're like, what? Right. I never say inappropriate things. Yeah. At work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and comedy have, do you ever speak up when you hear those things in the green room or uh, backstage or even on stage?
1: I would say it's probably like uh, a 10 to 2 ratio where I don't say anything.
0: You're laying some math on me on a Sunday.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, in comedy, there's just so many inappropriate things that are said all the time. I mean, it has to be very egregious. Um, like I recently had a, a situation where I was in the green room with a headliner um, and he was starting to tell me a story about how he was so excited about getting to say the N word on stage once. And the story was quite long, actually. Um, And in that moment I had to make a decision because the venue had already given me my chat. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, the, the guests, the guy who was doing a guest set was up and I was next. And so if I cuss this guy out and leave, number one, I have to give the check back. And number two, the guy who booked me on the show was not that guy. And so it's his show. And I really didn't want to leave him in a position of not having a feature. And I really like him. So in that instance, I made a decision to just, um, have a conversation with the guy who booked me. To do the show and then to resolve it that way. Even though it would have felt much better just to like ream that guy like from east to west, north to south. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. As a black person, actually, I had to talk to a few people after that because I almost felt like I didn't have any integrity. Mm. You know, because I'm like, as a black person, if I had any integrity, I would have just left that check. I would have told that guy off mm. and I would just be on my way. Mm. You know? Mhm. Mm-hmm. And you know' just in comedy you just have to make decisions like that all the time, and that was the one I made and I'm kind of okay with it
0: <laughs> right because you made the decision that other people were in, like you were part of the team you're a team player right
1: I was, the guy who booked me was going to be impacted the most, but if the guy who but if the guy who headlined who I was headlining with had booked me. And who ha- had told me that story, I definitely would have just cursed him out and left.
0: The headliner <laughs> is at the end and the most important comic. The feature, who which you were, you were in the middle. right? And the booker is the person who gets everyone runs together, the runs the and show. And who,
1: who has all the, he has to deal with the venue if something goes wrong. So and I that, didn't want to leave him in a position of this show going awry because of me. And that
0: booker was not there. So you couldn't. He was there. Oh, really? Okay. okay. Hmm. So you could you yeah. And so you ended up talking to that person afterwards.
1: Yeah. I made it very clear never to book me with that with that person. Person again.
0: Does it bother you that that person didn't learn their lesson or didn't learn like what if that person does it to another black person?
1: I know. That that's the part where it it's kind of troubling because for him to feel like it was okay to tell me that and seem kind of giddy about it. Like, oh, my God, like let me breath. tell you this story about getting to say the N-word on stage. And I've only gotten to do it once. I mean, he was, like, really, you know, it was a story of, like, pleasure for him. Like, he really enjoyed it. So I, I thought about that. And and maybe he should say it to another black person who's going to knock his socks off. So, <laughs> and I won't be responsible for that. <laughs> Like I you know, I gave you a pass and you didn't learn the lesson and so that's that's what happened to you. It's been a great conversation. It's a conversation that I think we need to have as women and particularly as women of color, you know, walking around in this world.
0: And there will be a time that I may say something or think something and need to be checked. And I'm hoping that when that time comes, I will be receptive and I won't be defensive because it's growth. None of us are born as a perfect ally. None of us are born in a way that we are immune to the effects of racism or sexism. We, right. It's it's internal. Mm-hmm. And if I say or do something, I hope that I would learn from that and say, wow, I didn't even know. That's so deep. How would you do it if I said something that was anti-black racism or I said something anti-lesbian what, how would you tell me that I had done something wrong?
1: Um, first, I would judge whether or not it had malice. And then um, I would just have a conversation with you. Because so many times I think um, people are just f- afraid to have conversations. But if you never tell somebody that something that they're saying is um, offensive They're just going to keep saying it and and you cannot really lay the blame on them. Nobody ever told them you would say common sense would tell them this isn't right. Mm -hmm. Maybe they didn't grow up in in an environment or around people who told them that it wasn't right. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I need to take that opportunity and let you know. Mm -hmm. Now, if you continue to do it after that, then I have to just assume you're an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Once I've told you and you know, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, we take it from there. That's right.
0: Well, I wanted to, uh, do you have anything else that you want to end with or talk about? Because I want to say one thing before.
1: No, I just, you know, it's been a great conversation. It's a conversation that I think we need to have as women and particularly as women of color, Mm -hmm. you know, walking around in this world.
0: And there will be a time that I may say something or think something and need to be checked. And I'm hoping that when that time comes, I will be receptive and I won't be defensive because... It's growth. None of us are born as a perfect ally. None of us are born in a way that we are immune to the effects of racism or sexism. We, right. it's, it's internal.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: if I say or do something, I hope that I would learn from that and say, wow, I didn't even know. That's so deep. Uh, w- one time I visited you in Oakland and we went to eat mac and cheese. And uh, they had all these. Top- I hate that term. What?
1: It's macaroni and cheese. Macaroni
0: and cheese. Already, this is a <laughs> microaggression towards black people. Uh, so I had macaroni and cheese and uh, and they, they had like uh, toppings that you could include, like breadcrumbs, peas, bacon. Broccoli. Yes. And I said, hey, Corinda, how about we get some broccoli on our macaroni and cheese? And then And
1: I said, you're offending me as a black person right now. <laughs>
0: And then I said, why do, is it, do black people not put broccoli on their (laughs) mac and cheese?
1: And I said, absolutely not. And then I said, maybe if they wanted to impress white people, but I've never heard of it. But apparently it's a thing.
0: So then we did not order the macaroni and cheese with broccoli. We ordered it plain and it was, you said it was good for white person cooking it right you said it was mediocre i did yours is better i've had yours it's much better i've had your mom's too
1: it's much better too But the thing is that these places try to make macaroni and cheese fancy and you know they're putting all these fancy cheeses like gouda and um i don't know stuff you can't pronounce
0: Mm -hmm. like mellifluous cheese (laughs) So yeah, It's true.
1: And, you know, they put in these little cast iron skillets and they bring it out to you and it's like sizzling and you're thinking, oh my God, this has eight different cheeses in it from Europe. It should be fantastic. And it tastes like paper. Yeah, it's boring. And, you know, and I think I told you, I was like, anytime a restaurant lists the types of cheeses they have in macaroni and cheese, don't eat it. Yeah.
0: It's not authentic.
1: Because people who really make macaroni and cheese well will never tell you what they put into it.
0: I learned. I learned about... The subculture yes. of of the black experience in macaroni <laughs> and cheese, and then uh, and then remember like I, I felt a little bit bad that I had done that, and then I tried to change the subject and I said, uh, "How about Beyonce?" Or so I tried to change the subject.
1: <laughs> no, you said Obama. Oh,
0: that's a, another a famous <laughs> black person. I was like, "What do you think about Obama? I really like him." <laughs> Thank you for listening to Sarcasmic with Dialect Shminarian on ravishly.com. Follow us on iTunes or SoundCloud.